All right, it's question show time. Your questions, my answers, wherever you are across our channel. If a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. So uh, again, we got a special guest answerer today. So stick around to the end of the show and uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. All right, let's get into the questions. Disasterina. Could ion drive acceleration ever be so much to serve as artificial gravity for astronauts traveling within the solar system? You've been watching The Expanse, I think. Um, so the, like, this is, would be amazing, right? This idea that if you could just continuously accelerate a spacecraft at 9.8 meters per second per second, that would match the acceleration that we experience down here on, on Earth thanks to the gravity of the planet. And if you could keep doing that, just keep accelerating and keep accelerating, you would absolutely create artificial gravity that astronauts could walk around and they would be going faster and faster to their destination and then they could turn around and slow themselves down at that same rate. It would be a perfect world. The problem is we have no way to create that much thrust from a spacecraft for any long period of time. We can get by for a few minutes, maybe using a chemical rocket. But as I mentioned in the video on, on ion engines, they provide as much uh, thrust as if you hold a piece of paper. And that's like a full ion engine designed to push a spacecraft around the solar system. So there are more significant ion engines in the works that maybe could be hooked up to uh, nuclear power plants and uh, have much, you know, much more energetic uh, thrust that are coming out the back, but it still won't be anywhere near what you would need to be able to have um, anything like artificial gravity. And we just really, we just don't have anything that would be able to do it. Unfortunately, it's going to be a while. If we get to a point where we have fusion drives uh, that can be running for a long period of time, maybe we'll have a chance at it. But I think that for the longest time, producing artificial gravity through continuous acceleration is going to be in the realm of science fiction. I'm sorry. HL65536. Answer to question one isn't really correct. I believe that answer for a long time. And then I watched a lecture about the process to extract information out of the raw data from microwave background images. I was surprised to hear that the absolute speed of the Earth has to be taken into account to remove Doppler effects on the microwave radiation. No matter where you are in the universe, there is always an absolute point of reference, the CMB. Okay, so in last week's episode, I talked about how the, the everything is relative, there's no perfect stop in space, that essentially you just always have to say compared to what, right? Are you stopped compared to the Earth? Are you stopped compared to a galaxy? Are you stopped compared to Jupiter? What is it going to be? And I had a bunch of people say, oh, well, the, I mean, an absolute point of reference is the cosmic microwave background, which is the leftover illumination from when the universe finally got transparent and light could escape into the universe. And that's just another thing, right? Like, absolutely, there's such a thing as the cosmic microwave background, and you're exactly right. When astronomers are working with the cosmic microwave background, they have to remove the Earth's motion around the sun, have to remove or account for the solar system's uh, movement around the galaxy, the galaxy's movement within the local cluster, that there is an absolute speed that we are moving compared to the cosmic microwave background. But when you think about what the cosmic microwave background is, it is just this time when this light was able to escape into the universe. And everybody's cosmic microwave background is different, right? So if I'm 
uh, say in Andromeda, the the light that I'm seeing is different from the light that you're seeing. So am I stopped in respect to the cosmic microwave background from a person who's being inside the Milky Way, or am I being stopped from the perspective of someone who's being in Andromeda? It's just another thing to be relative to. And in fact, it is a purely subjective thing, right? When you are standing in a fog and you can see near you very closely and then far away, everything gets kind of fuzzy and foggy and then you can't see anything more. That is a personal experience that only you're seeing from your perspective. Somebody else sees a completely different sphere around them in the fog. So, um, so I, I mean, I think that was great and I should have mentioned that in the video, but I, I don't, that doesn't provide a definitive laws of the universe. This is a thing that is, that is an absolute reference point. It's just another thing to be related to. Ido Deckers. Hey Fraser, is magnetic launch possible, cost effective, something like the catapult on a new aircraft carrier, either to give initial velocity or less likely to orbit? I mean, you're talking about various kinds of kinetic launch vehicles. Think about like rail guns or gauss guns, things that use electricity to, and magnets in some way to speed up a projectile to high velocities. And now I think apparently the Chinese have, have put one of these on one of their ships as a, as a weapon that can be used. And it sounds pretty terrifying and it's very effective. Uh, could you use it as a rocket launch system? Probably. Uh, people have proposed this idea, uh, launch loops, electromagnetic rail guns, things like this. The problem with, there's a couple of problems with this. One is the amount of acceleration. You know, with the kind of uh, rail gun that you could use to accelerate a payload to orbital velocities, you need a very, either something that can handle a lot of acceleration and have a very short launch track, or if you're going to launch human beings, you actually need a launch track that is, you know, a hundred plus kilometers long. Otherwise you'll kill the passengers as you accelerate them. And you actually need to have your launch track built up this big slope dozens of kilometers into the air to make a smooth enough trajectory for you to be able to reach that orbital velocity. But I think your idea about like use a head start, use some kind of, man, the birds are going crazy right above me. I apologize in advance for the bird sound. Um, there, there must be some combination where you begin the acceleration with the with your electromagnetic system and then what and then a chemical rocket system takes over for the rest and you get savings in the amount of of fuel that you have to have to carry the other problem is that a a launch system like that if you provide sort of your launch in one kick right it's this idea of like you know could superman kick a person into orbit and no because they would explode in the atmosphere by going that velocity. But the other part to it is, is that you can never get into orbit with one kick, right? So when a spacecraft launches, when a rocket launches, it goes up, reaches what's called apogee, which is sort of the height, the height of the orbit that it wants to hit. And then it fires its rockets again to circularize its orbit. And if you've just got this one launch that's coming off of the ground and you're kicking yourself up into a into a high trajectory, you're going to return back to the Earth, or you're going to go into escape beyond escape velocity, and you're going to head off into the rest of the solar system. So I think we have 
sort of technological engineering challenges to make this work. We've got the issue that you're still going to need some other kind of booster to be able to circularize your orbit. But I think it's a good direction. I know there's a couple of companies that are working on these ideas to try and figure out a way that, that you could do this over the long term. So, so stay tuned. And if cool projects are shown, I will definitely be covering them in the future. OLEX. Hey Fraser, what if our electromagnetic spectrum is different from an extraterrestrial civilization? They would see other colors than us, something that we would never be able to see. Is that possible? The electromagnetic spectrum is the electromagnetic spectrum. It is one of the fundamental forces of the universe. Radio waves, microwaves, infrared, ultraviolet, visible light, oh, well, visible light, ultraviolet, x-ray, and gamma rays. It is this single spectrum, and it is across the entire universe. We happen to have eyes that let us detect a certain region of the electromagnetic spectrum, from red to to violet, and we can't see ultraviolet, we can't see infrared. And different animals have a different part of the spectrum that they're able to see, uh, and, and even sort of more gradation. But at the end of the day, they're just perceiving the electromagnetic spectrum. So you could, you could absolutely imagine some alien civilization using infrared to see, or ultraviolet to see. But... It's not a different electromagnetic spectrum. We would still be able to communicate with them and they would be able to communicate with us. We just wouldn't necessarily be able to see with our own eyes what's being given off, but we could use our instruments to be able to detect them. I mean, that's what a radio telescope is. It's allowing us to see the electromagnetic spectrum at a region that our eyes can't see. While a telescope, we're seeing visible light in this, that is of the same spectrum that our eyes can see. So, so there's not like some different spectrum that aliens would, use, would, would see that we couldn't see and so we could never communicate. It's just that we might need to use technology to be able to communicate with them. 420 Ninja. If we assume for a second that there is life on Europa, is it not possible that we could bring some back sort of an alien pathogen with a sample return mission? Viruses, bacteria, and parasites are so dangerous because they evolved in lockstep with us to exploit our weaknesses or to make more copies of themselves or to, you know, whatever they have evolved to do. And we have defenses and our defenses evolved to try and withstand them. And it's this arms race that goes on and on. And so you would imagine if we went to some other, you know, brought back a sample from Europa or something like that, that that whatever creatures came from that place, they wouldn't have evolved with us in any similar way. And so, um, so we wouldn't anticipate that they would infect us in the, in the same way that a virus or something can infect us here. Completely different evolutionary pathways, the likelihood is very low. The big risk, the thing that people are concerned about when you bring samples back to Earth is that you don't want to contaminate it with Earth life. You want to know that the sample that you brought back, this weird alien creature from Europa, hasn't just been contaminated with an Earth bacteria that's really weird and you have a confusing science result. And that's one of the reasons why scientists want to be so careful about how they bring this stuff back to Earth. Proud American Rob Man. Got a question. If we ever become a civilization that travels the solar system galaxy and starts to colonize it, is there any type of universal measurement for the time, like day, hours, minutes, that we can use so everyone's on the same clock? I assume 60-60-24 would not work out. 
When you think about it right now, uh, our time system is totally arbitrary. I mean, there's no reason why you should break a day into 24 hours. It makes sense that you would break a year into 365 days because that's how long it takes for the Earth to turn once on its axis, right? A day. <clears throat> but there's no reason why you should break it up into 24 hours. There's no reason why you would break an hour into 60 minutes and no reason why you would break a minute into 60 seconds. So because they are arbitrary already, I would assume that as we move out into the solar system and into the universe, we will just hang on to that arbitrary time scale and just keep using it. I can just imagine in the year 3000, year 5000, the computer, our robot overlords will still measure time in seconds or, or nanoseconds because it's what everything is coded in and it's too much of a pain to come up with some different number like the vibrations of a cesium atom. So yeah, I think in the far, far future, we'll still have the same time system. Fraser, TGB. There are three ways that we, the public, know of. Lockheed, Northrop, Boeing, Douglas, etc. certainly know of more ways. Lockheed has threatened to produce a small solar fusion reactor any day now. Why do you think Lockheed did that? Does anybody think that solar isotopes and fission are the only games? This was based on the uh, episode that I did about power in space, how there's solar power, fission power, uh, and radio isotopic generators and that right now fusion is sort of outside of our reach and sure there could be technologies that have been developed that are more powerful than we are aware of and they haven't been released to the general public and so what right like like i'm not going to put one of those technologies in my spacecraft or Mars colony because it doesn't exist yet and has no one has told me. And then if someone tells us, then I'll use it, right? Like, sure, there could be all kinds of things that are being developed in secret. And then if they never tell anybody, then it's kind of like they never happened. Um, and I think, you know, we've heard that Lockheed Martin is planning a small fusion reactor. Great. Finish it. Lockheed didn't share it with the public and let's see it work and people can do tests and implement it in their ships and spacecraft and let's get going already. Uh, I think the, the fusion has been an incredibly difficult technology for us to master. And you see the Europeans with their IDER project and the Chinese and Americans are racing to make a sustainable fusion plant work. And if one of them is able to do it, then they're going to have a method of almost unlimited power that will be relatively inexpensive. So this seems like a big incentive to roll these technologies out and not a lot of incentive to keep this a secret. So, uh, but yeah, like for sure, there could be all kinds of technologies we don't know about. And until they tell us, then it's as if they don't exist. And I just will, I don't even care. Just I'll wait till people tell me things that exist. Robert McPherson. If the Clipper lander missions to Europa confirm the presence of life, then what are potentially likely scenarios that would play out from a government budget and national science agenda perspective? Can we expect extremely rapid and substantially funded follow-up missions? Would it rally immense international cooperation? Or would it result in competition from the likes of China and the U.S. to make first discoveries? What would the major considerations that inform international policy and how we continue to probe Europa and disturb interact with the life there? That is a great question. And I think that if there was like absolute certain life discovered on Europa. It would be everything that everyone was talking about for a short period of time. Then it would 
fall down a news cycle. And, you know, I mean, sites like us, we'd keep talking about it, but most people wouldn't be that excited about it. Um, you would see a tremendous amount of prioritization in sending follow-up missions to map out the scale and the size and the kind of life that's there. And, you know, and you might see a follow-on Europa mission and a drill mission and all these kinds of things. But I don't think it would have the kind of sort of deep existential uh, collaboration, crisis collaboration that a lot of people think would happen. Like, huge chunks of the ocean haven't been explored. And we find all kinds of interesting life in the middle of really extreme biospheres in, in uh, Costa Rica and places like that. And so for us to find unusual life is not a thing that, that is completely out of the bounds of what we've seen before. It would be alien life, probably, right? Or connected through some kind of panspermia event. But I, I think you would be amazed at how quickly human beings can in, kind of internalize and become numb. I don't know if numb's the right word, but bored with an amazing new mind-shattering discovery. And so you would see increased budgets in Europa missions and the news and the science would trickle back. Uh, I don't know if there would necessarily be a race. There might be more cooperation, but it would just be... And then people would be looking for, like, does Enceladus have the same kind of life? When did it differ from us. So I, I, I just, I don't feel like it would be the kind of enormous world changing, society changing event that we would hope that it would be. And you can have this sort of glimmer, the sneak peek of it when, remember back in the 1980s when uh, they announced that they'd found life on Mars, those little wormies in a meteorite, and there was a lot of news. And, and then it, there was an argument and people kind of maybe debunked it and it's still a controversy. That was the discovery of life on Mars, and, and here we are, and we barely talk about it, right? Was it really life? We don't know. <laughs> and so I think that's the problem, and that's what we will see for a long time. And by the time we do understand exactly what it is, people will be bored, and we'll just sort of deal with that on our regular, ongoing, day-to-day lives. Marty Ninja, what is the Milky Way orbiting? The Milky Way is actually part of this region called the local group. So there's three big galaxies in the local group. There's the Milky Way, there's Andromeda, and there's Triangulum Galaxy, M33. And then there's a whole bunch of smaller dwarf galaxies that are caught up in this mix. And those three galaxies are orbiting the common center of gravity of the local group. And they're all sort of spinning around this this region. And the local group is part of the larger Virgo supercluster. And same thing, all of the galaxies and all of the, the galaxy clusters are all orbiting around this common center of gravity. And the, the, um, the Virgo supercluster is part of the Lanakai supercluster. Um, although after a certain point, as dark energy and as the expansion of the universe is, is, strong, is a stronger force than the gravity that's pulling these things together, it doesn't really make sense to say that they're orbiting anything. But, but yeah, so the local group, the Milky Way, and the rest of the galaxies in the local group are orbiting the common center of gravity of the local group. S47. How does one dispose of heat in space, and what kind of processes are used in satellites? There are three ways that you can transfer heat. There's convection, 
where you've got like particles of air that push you know, warm air. When you feel a warm wind, then you're experiencing convection. Uh, you've got conduction where say a metal can transfer heat where the where the the molecules are bumping into each other and transferring heat along and then you've got radiation where essentially photons of of radiation are emitted by something and it cools down in its temperature. And out in space, you can't use those first two. You can only use radiation. And it's actually a bit, pretty big problem. You know, you can have a, a spacecraft be getting a lot of heat from the sun, for example, and not able to get rid of that heat. And so uh, the best example, and I hope we can sort of have a picture of this, is on the International Space Station, there are radiators. And what they do is they take ammonia and they pump it through these radiators because it is able to you know, convect the heat out into these radiators. And then the radiators radiate the heat away from the International Space Station. And they're designed to be the right size to be able to let the space station get rid of the heat that it is absorbing from the sun. And when you think about how much time it spends in sunlight and how much time it spends in shadow, and you see they're actually really big. Like when you look at the space station, it looks like they are other solar panels, but they're not. They're radiators designed to get rid of all that heat. And any spacecraft design needs to take this into account to make sure that it doesn't overheat when it's spending time, especially close to the, close to the sun. So radiators, savannas. Fraser, I can't figure this out. My experience in Kerbal Space Program has taught me that a higher orbit has a lower orbital speed. However, I cannot explain this to anyone as I can't find the logic in it either. Is it that the decreased gravity due to distance? Is it the centrifugal force increases with radius? Or does that even exist in orbiting bodies? Please explain this to me. No problem. So when you think about gravity, right? Uh, well, when you think about orbits, let's start with orbits. So when you think about orbits, you've got the, you are in balance. As you are orbiting, say, Earth, you, are, you have all the forces around you are in perfect balance. And so you don't experience an acceleration in any direction. You're going around and around the Earth. Now, what are the forces that are working on you, right? You've got the force of gravity that is pulling you down, and that's counteracted by your orbital velocity, your momentum as you're going around the Earth. That is you know, that gives you a force that is pushing you outward. And those two forces are in perfect balance. And so you don't crash into the earth and you don't fly off into space. Now, the force of gravity drops as you go farther and farther away from the object that is pulling you down. So if you go twice as far away from the earth, then you're going to experience less gravity, right? Is it half? Inverse square law? Inverse, I think it's the inverse square law. You experience half the gravity, quarter of the gravity. Anyway, I apologize in advance. You experience less gravity. And so you've got, when you think about those, those two forces that are pulling on you, the one that's pulling you towards the earth is now a smaller number. And so therefore, to counteract that smaller number, you have to be going less quickly. You have to be going more slowly. You have to be generating less of that outward force from your velocity around the planet. And so at every point, the closer you get to the planet, the faster you have to go to counteract that gravity. The farther away from the planet you are, the slower you have to go to counteract that gravity. And that's how it works. And it is a very counterintuitive thing. You would expect that the farther away you are, the faster you have to go because it's like a bigger distance that you have to go around the orbit. But no, it works the other way around. Tim Robinson. 
How do astronomers judge the speed of galaxies, objects, etc., when everything is relative? They often say a galaxy is moving away at a certain speed. Is it as simple as that speed is being measured in relation to Earth? That's a great question, and I have called in a friend, Athena Brensberger from Astro Athens uh, YouTube channel, and she has a great Instagram channel, and she does really great explainers, goes into the math a lot of the times in some of these kinds of questions, and I thought I'd let her tackle this. So uh, watch her answer now. Hello everyone, Athena here from the Astro Athens channel. So I got this really great question um, about how astronomers are able to measure um, the speeds in which galaxies are moving and also other objects in our universe are moving when everything in the universe is supposed to be relative. Um, very valid question. Um, he actually follows up to say, is it because we are measuring the speeds of these galaxies and objects in respect to Earth. And the answer to that is yes. We are measuring the distances and the speeds in which galaxies um, and other objects in our universe are moving based on Earth using something known as Hubble's Law. So Hubble's Law um, pretty much says that the velocity of an object is directly proportional to um, the distance of the object. So one thing that that's actually used is um, something known as the Doppler shift and also the red shift of the galaxies um, to measure where it's actually moving, red shift, blue shift. I'll explain that in a second. So every object in our universe either um, emits light or reflects light other than dark matter and dark energy. We're not going to talk about that right now. But everything as far as matter goes um, that we're able to actually see, so luminous matter, like um, stars and galaxies, other objects that are moving, um, all of them give off a light spectrum, right? So they're, they're able to give off some time bright light, like Earth reflects the light from the sun, um, other, other stars are able to emit light, and galaxies are made up of millions and billions of stars. So we're able to visually see that. Now, based on their light spectrum that's actually picked up, we are able to measure, astronomers are able to measure the distances based on that light spectrum. And what was found is that all galaxies are moving into the redshift of what I, what I was bringing up before of the, the Doppler shift. What I mean by that is if you have something moving close to you, like a car, for instance, we, we like to do this a lot in physics class, is explain the Doppler shift by a moving vehicle because it doesn't just work by light, it also works by sound waves. Um, when something is moving close to you, it's getting higher and louder and higher pitch. The frequency is getting more like this, and the wavelength is getting more crushed. That's blue shift. So it goes as it's moving further away. That um, the wavelength of its sound, of its sound wave, is actually stretching, and that's becoming something known as redshift. Galaxies are doing this. Their light that we are picking up is red shifting away from us, meaning we are measuring now that it is moving away. That's kind of a general um, explanation of how we're able to measure that, that everything is moving away from us in re respect to um, just the expansion rate of the universe. And this is actually how the expansion rate of the universe was measured. Um, as far as specifically the speeds go, if they're able to actually break down um, the rate in which this redshift is moving, that's where the speeds will then come in. That's how, based on um, the wavelength of light and how much it is redshifting, so how much it's stretching and getting longer and longer and moving further away, the light is getting more stretched out by, um, by its redshift, is how we're able to actually measure the speed in which it's moving. Um, 
so as far as like what I was saying, let me try to draw this out for you guys to, to re-explain it. Um, pretty much you have like Earth, we'll just say, okay, here's planet Earth. And this is the Milky Way galaxy. We'll just say this is the Milky Way galaxy, okay? Because we're talking galaxies now. So this is the Milky Way galaxy. These are, these are the arms, you know, like nice, beautiful arms. Um, and we're measuring a galaxy that's all the way here, right? Let's erase this Hubble law for a second. We're measuring a galaxy that's here. It's light that's being emitted is, um, I'll draw it actually as a wavelength because that is the light spectrum. We're able to actually measure this right here. So this, this is the light um, that we're actually measuring. So I'll write the light. Um, and this is the wavelength of the light spectrum. So we're able to see this. We're able to detect this. Um, and what's happening is we see that over time, this, um, this, this, the light spectrum, this wavelength is getting longer and longer and longer, meaning that the galaxy is moving further away. Whereas if it was getting shorter and shorter and shorter and the wavelength was getting more like this, then that means the galaxy would be moving towards us. So that's what the blue shift is, is that it's, it, the galaxy would actually be moving towards our galaxy. And then we're like, oh, okay, it's actually, its speed is, um, you know, it's, its velocity is actually increasing, but in the direction towards us, which means that it would merge with us. Um, for instance, Andromeda. So we know that we're going to be eventually merging with Andromeda. Um, and that's because it's a little bit different. So you have the expansion of the universe. Um, you have everything being pushed out and pushed out by, by um, the expansion rate of, of, well, you have dark energy, for instance, um, to kind of contradict dark matter because dark matter has a gravitational pull and it's pulling us all in, but dark, dark uh, energy is pushing us all out. I'll get into that another time. Um, Andromeda is um, already on the trajectory towards the Milky Way galaxy because of its gravitational bound to us. So you have that, that extra gravitational force between the Andromeda galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy, and the Milky Way galaxy is smaller than the Andromeda galaxy, and so it's getting pulled in, like, you know, slowly. I mean, it's retrospect to our lifetime. Um, you know, little by little by little, which will eventually, it'll become a merger, a galaxy merger, and do this kind of beautiful dance of, of all the stars. Uh, but anyway, um, I hope that this was a pretty clear answer. I'm already at six minutes. So thanks so much, guys. Okay, bye. <laughs> Thanks, Athena. That was awesome. And of course, if you want more of her kinds of content, go to her channel and subscribe. I'll put a link in the show notes and a little card thing. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. As always, I really enjoy getting your questions. So if you're watching any one of my videos and a question pops in your brain, just write it down. I'll gather them up and I will answer them here. I'll see you next week.